Previously on Storylogical. <laughs> uh, and let me tell you, the Brits, we are really underachieving in terms of 70s TV show theme songs. Theme, theme songs. Yeah. Or unless, unless you count Life on Mars. Life on Mars was good, but it was only set in the 70s. Yeah. It was not made in the 70s. In the no, 70s, it was not. We were, we were losing but to be fair, against that one dude who composed every single 70s TV show theme tune in yeah. the whole of America. Mike, uh, what was his name? Mike, Mike Smith Post. Mike, Mike Post. Post. Mike yeah. Post composed Quantum Leap and NYPD Blue and Hill Street Blues and all, Magnum P.I. Magnum P.I. Did we do Hawaii 5 did we, did we check that one? Uh, I don't know if he did Hawaii 5 I think that was Danny O. I think that's why they called it that. This is Storyological, a podcast about amazing stories. That we kind of like. I'm Chris Camerud. And I'm E.G. Kosh. So, Pockets by Amal Amotar is in the second issue of Uncanny, uh, but you should not read the version in the issue. Apparently, you should read the version on the web. So, that is from January, but of course, you can just Google it. I don't know why we tell you what month stories came out. Yeah, Google doesn't care. Doesn't matter. Google is time agnostic. Yeah. Uh, Pockets is is a simple story full of wisdom and whimsy but not just any whimsy it's precise precise whimsy which is my favorite kind of whimsy Uh the first line of the story is the first strange thing nadia pulled from her pocket was a piece of fudge i love this sentence for a lot of reasons Mm -hmm. here are three (laughs) (laughs) one the first strange thing is so good because every great opening line needs to contain within it the magic necessary to sort of begin the story unfolding in your imagination. So as soon as she says the first strange thing, you're you're already set up. What's the second thing? What's the third thing? It's strange. Mm -hmm. Okay. Pockets and fudge. I love pockets, both, both the actual thing of a pocket Mm -hmm. and the word jacket pockets, trouser pockets, pockets of time, pocket protectors, pocket universes. What is a pocket protector? You missed that bit of nerdery. A pocket protector is the thing that you put in a, like if you have a pocket on your shirt uh-huh. and you're going to put pins and things in it, you put a little protector so if the pins oh, or pencils. That is the dorkiest thing I have ever yeah, heard. It's I love it. Yeah. Little people riding inside of shirt pockets on shirts that are worn by bigger people. I love those. Basically, <laughs> I think what I'm saying is that someday I should write a story set entirely in a world of pockets. Or maybe just, just in a pocket. Just, yeah, or maybe just in one pocket. Yeah. Uh, fudge. I don't really love the word fudge or or fudge, but I love the tone created by its placement at the end of the sentence because, you know, if she had said, I pulled out a gun or a frog or a man, totally different stories, but fudge... When you pull it out of a pocket, it's covered in wool or maybe bits of tissue or horrible icky things. So the idea of pulling some fudge out of your pocket and it's all gone squishy, it's just like, it contains within it a sweetness and deliciousness, but kind of gone bad. Uh, and I love, <laughs> I love that... That mixture of How do you ideas. know it's bad? It because you be pulled it out from pocket. It could be good. Uh, so, so in, in the story, as you might have gathered at this point, a woman pulls strange things out of her pocket. Her name is Nadia. Uh, and one of the things this story has is lists, which are one of my most favorite things in the world, in part because they kind of cast an illusion of order mm-hmm. over the chaotic universe. Uh, but also because basically, I don't know if you ever noticed this, but magic spells, are you, they're just a list of stuff. <laughs> Uh, and so that's what lists always have meant to me once I realized like lists are just, they're just incantations. They have their own kind of magic. Mm-hmm. And this story has a lot of good magic in it. Here's a list of things that Nadia pulls out of her pocket. A stiff bristle paintbrush, a single chopstick, an old looking bath plug and chain, a flintlock pistol recently fired. Mm. Oh, it's so good. 
one of the things I love next that, that happens in the story is where she starts pulling all these strange things out of her pockets. And then the, the sort of middle of the story is her going with her friend to a lab to do science on yeah, her weird pockets. I love that they do scientific experiments to test the the breadth and strength and, I don't know, surrounding rules of the magic because that's what I always think I would do. I'm like, oh my God, this weird, weird shit is happening. Can I make it happen again? You know proper scientific analysis of the magic that is happening and and then mm. they get to the end of the scientific bit because nadia is like dude stop experimenting on me this is weird and i just want to think about it emotionally and it felt mm. like such a real kind of arc for a character exactly to exactly it's a real it's a real definite arc which is my favorite thing in whimsy mm-hmm. is realness and definiteness uh, yeah, I thought that that ultimately that moment where Nadia decides I'm tired of doing science. I'm try I'm tired of trying to figure out how this works, and I want to start thinking about the meaning or the why of this is happening to me. It felt like a fa- just a, a brief, great interlude, but I mean, it is a plot thing. Mm-hmm. So it's both the the hinge that the story turns on, and as a great kind of encapsulation of the discussion of of like the the different points of view of whether you want to understand something or mm-hmm. whether you want to solve mm-hmm. it of whether you want to find an explanation for it or you want to find answers for it which i realize those words mean kind of the same thing but they i feel like feel when you're like certain... emotionally very different approaches to answering the same question right 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 yes oh the the, the other thing or a, another thing really let's mm-hmm. just keep going i have a, i have more than one other thing that i could talk about uh so one of the things about Amal uh, Amotar is that she's a poet, and you can read her poems in Apex or Mythic Delirium, and the sentences in pockets. I wanted to hug them. Uh, for example, just listen to this sentence. Nadia walked along the river with her friend, only half listening to Tessa while breathing on her thinly gloved hands, rubbing them together in the cold air. Mm, thinly gloved hands. Perfect. Then she reached into her pocket and pulled out a trombone. This next one... It's a sentence. There's a lot of semicolons, but it's a sentence. Together they determined that Nadia could only pull things out of pockets she herself was wearing. That a coat draped over one shoulder apparently didn't count as wearing after several separate tries. That objects did not vanish if put back in the pockets. And that after a pomander... A pomander? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. An ocarina, an empty plastic bag, a dry peach pit were listing <laughs> a drop spindle, a broken hockey stick, an empty fountain pen, a small gnome, a pack of wooden playing cards. After all that, they were no closer to learning where the objects were coming from, why they had started appearing in Nadia's pockets, or most crucially, how to make them stop. Oh, yeah, the, I had no idea she was a poet, but one of the things I made a note that I wanted to talk about was the rhythm. So in a story that is mainly about, oh my god, I'm pulling this weird shit from my pockets what is happening she builds this incredible emotional rhythm into it like from the first opening line that we just spoke about the first thing i pull from my pocket then the next paragraph is the second thing that she pulled from her pocket the third thing and then inside of each sentence the rhythm of it just it just keeps you moving and like reaching forward for the next word i love it yeah yeah something about the rhythm I feel like, and also the content of the story, the idea that you're pulling strange things out of your pocket, and eventually you learn that somebody else, when they put things in their pocket, the things disappear. Mm. Uh, I, I felt a connection to the kind of mysterious ache of just existing in the universe and the way things and people and moments come in and out of our lives. 
you know, often we don't really know why, why they're there or why we lost them or why we got them. And we just kind of carry on doing the best we can and kind of sharing the experience mm -hmm. with the people we love. Mm -hmm. for, for me, the story was a, a wonderful, positive metaphor for creativity. Like you don't mm -hmm. know how it happens or why it happens. You just know that you need to keep doing it and you need to trust that somebody out there is reading it, is seeing it, is looking at what you're creating and getting something from it. Yeah. And that you'll never really understand the mechanism. Uh, but right. that doesn't mean that it can't be an amazing influence. Yeah. The There's an amazing line drawn between the idea that the spark you have to create somehow corresponds to a need or a, a void or a mm -hmm. desire in mm -hmm. somebody else that your creativity can fill. Mm -hmm. And there's... There's something in this story. There is a great encapsulation of creativity because there's in the story is built in this idea of, of just throwing things out in the world and trusting someone will receive them and that it will mean something to them. And loving that that person exists in the world, even though you can't see them, even though in the act of creating something for them, you are inventing them. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, it's very, very lovely. It made me think a lot of that thing that Ted Chang said, which is mm. to, to new writers or to writers who haven't had much published out there is you, you've got to remember that the people who love your stuff exist already. They already love it. You've just got to find them. Exactly. So that was Pockets by Amal Amatar, Uncanny Issue 2. But don't, don't read it in the magazine. Go find it on the web. Uh, also, you should check out the Uncanny podcast where she reads the story and is also interviewed. So the story I've chosen this week is Sooner or Later, Everything Falls Into the Sea by Sarah Pinsker. It was in Lightspeed uh, in February 2016. So I'm going to summarize it for you right before we get into it. So the story is about a woman named Bay who lives alone on a deserted coastline and lives off the things that she scavenges that are washed up on the beach. There's, there's a, a, a sentence in the first paragraph that describes this and kind of sets up what it is. All kinds of things washed up if Bay waited long enough. Not just glass and plastic, but personal trainers and croupiers and entertainment directors and dance teachers. And at that sentence, I was like, what? What do you mean? Th those are people. How are they washing up on the beach? How is this not... How is this even happening, right? In the world of this story, it's because these people... People live on the boats and the boats are where the rich people live now is that the power and the water and everything is not working on the land. So it's kind of uh, what I understand the author calls soft apocalypse story. Much like Pockets, uh, this story reminded me of Castaway. No, I'm just kidding. This story <laughs> reminded me of Castaway. Pockets did not remind me of Castaway. Cast what is Castaway? Castaway... Do you mean the Tom Hanks movie? Yes, I, oh, I mean the Tom okay, Hanks yeah. movie. Anyway, so much like Castaway, this story, I, I felt that a beautiful sense of, of life taking things away and bringing them back the world coming the world going you know the, the woman bay had a relationship with the woman deb and deb is in bay's life and then deb is not in bay's life oh, I, I love how the the setting of the story on the bay with bay with, bay. with the with the tide and coming and going no it's a bay Oh uh, yeah, we don't know it's a bay. It's That's just true. a coastline. It's just a coastline. Um, the, the the sense of, of bay waiting there, collecting whatever comes her way, and never trying to find Deb, never leaving to find something else, and waiting and waiting for something to wash upon shore. I loved how Sarah used the setting 
to, mm-hmm. to be the character and that mm-hmm. the way the character interacts with the setting, even unto the moment when she leaves the setting to go after Gabby when Gabby leaves. Mm. I, should, I should probably elaborate on the summary. I just got, oh, okay. I got so excited oh, about true. Bay and the things washing up. But the, the story really centers around the thing that washes up in the first sentence, which is a rock star. And this rock star is called Gabby and she's an entertainer on the boats. And the story focuses on their relationship. And it is what I wrote down as a fish out of water story, literally, because, you know, Gabby has come from the water. She but she's also come from this world of entertainment and riches and things being provided from, for her. But then that's set in, the, in contrast to Bay, who's been living off the land for the last, I guess, half dozen years waiting for her wife to join her and her wife has never made it out of the city has never met them at this old house that they used to come camping at and she just has this incredible sadness and stillness inside her whereas gabby is like this voluble entertainer look at me look at me gabby sort of person yeah 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 they, All right. um <laughs> what is the name for that when people are what they're called I'm sure there's a word. I don't like know. Onomatopoeia, I don't but know, but um, perhaps the most famous example is in uh, Pilgrim's Pride, Pilgrim's Journey. I don't remember, but uh, in progress. that. A Pilgrim's Progress. Right. How do you even know that? Because I'm British. That's so no more American. <laughs> it's not British at all. Um, that, that book, people are named like Hope and Faith and whatnot. Uh, oh my God, a person named Whatnot. That is waiting for me to write. I I, I wrote down that, you know, we have a someone comes to town story, a someone leaves town story. This one is the old fashioned someone comes to town after someone important has left town in a time sometime after everything. And this new relationship will possibly help transform what's left of the person who neither came nor left. Readers, you should not be concerned if that does not elucidate the story for you. Well, then, then I will unpack that. Yeah, so you have Bay, who has stayed in this one place ever since she went there, hoping mm-hmm. someone would join her. That someone never came. Mm-hmm. So Bay is not leaving her town. So the stranger has come to town after someone has basically left Bay's life. And what the story is going to do is show how the someone who comes to town will transform the relationship both between the person who has been there forever Mm -hmm. with her own past and with this new person. Mm -hmm. And so what I loved is how the story, as it follows Bay's relationship with Gabby, transforms from a someone comes to town into a someone leaves town story because Mm -hmm. Bay ultimately leaves her place to follow Gabby. And in that transformation, it again mirrors the the setting, the idea of the water coming in and water coming out. Mm -hmm. Bay is there and now Bay is gone. I love that both of these women are are dealing with their past in a way that they won't fully admit to each other and that they won't fully let go of either, right? So Bay is dealing with the fact that her wife never made it out to the, the camping house. And Gabby is dealing with the fact that her music doesn't mean as much to the people on the boats as maybe it meant to the world before the power and water switched off. Or maybe that you know it didn't mean as much as she hoped it would to people and and 
it's a grieving process for both of them that they that through this relationship in the story you you sort of see at the end a glimmer of of how they're both going to heal yeah and and into making that have have weight to it i loved how most of the story they had these wonderfully barbed interactions where mm-hmm. both of them are having like you said these internal conversations bay is more or less in conversation with deb and with this past that never showed up and gabby is having an internal conversation with her own make-believe interview with a show called inside the music which i don't know if you realize that is just based more than likely on the vh1 behind the music I didn't realize it was based okay. on something real, but I mean, when I realized that that was the structure that was going to be used for the story, I fell hard for this because, you know, interviewing myself about things that I have done or hope to do is kind of, well, now my not very so secret thing that I do because it helps me work through the things that I think. It helps me articulate them into ways that make sense and sentences that actually end somewhere near where they began. That was the moment that I I questioned the story most. So we are in the story, we're moving back and forth between uh, a third-person perspective with Bay at the center and a first-person perspective with Gabby. So Bay's story is all told in third person with her thinking about Deb. Gabby's story is told both in first person in the moment with Bay and in these imaginary interludes where she's being interviewed. And one that partly threw me because sometimes it allows there's there's a bit where Gabby basically explains her whole backstory mm-hmm. in an inside the music thing where in that in the exposition there are there are moments in the story where sometimes things are explained about the characters that I feel like it lifts me out of the dream of the moment of the story. And I'm thinking too much about how these individuals happen to get here and how um, Sarah is using that to help me understand something about the world. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I, you do kind of swing in and out of it, but I, I enjoyed that because it was much more like a lucid dream, you know, one that you have as you're waking up and then you're kind of awake asleep, awake asleep, and, that, and you kind of come flowing through the emotions of it. And, you know, at the beginning... It's not 100% clear that the interview that she's having is imaginary. You only realize that at the end when clearly she hasn't been rescued. Clearly she's not being interviewed. Clearly she's going to be stuck in this cottage with Bay at least until the seasons change. It was helpful for me to think through what those choices about perspective, how they helped me understand the characters more. So Bay is basically crusted over with barnacles. Yes. (laughs) Um, She's living alone in a cabin by the seashore, making a life out of whatever happens to wash up on her her shore. And then you have Gabby, less crusty, more more Gabby, I was going to say. So Bay, of course, third person, more distant. Gabby, first person, less distant. You have Bay not ever giving more than she must. Gabby giving all that she can. So those two different perspectives help elucidate those characters and i liked how as the story progresses towards these two people getting closer you have bay speaking much more of what would be her internal thoughts out loud to gabby and i liked how the how the perspectives came together as a way of showing these people coming together yeah absolutely and you know at the beginning of the story it's it's stated outright that that gabby is lying and it's very clear that She is someone who lies to herself and people around her about what she does and why she does it. And, you know, one of my favorite things in fiction is people who lie to themselves. And this story, what happens to Gabby, her somewhat accidental 
you know, she likes to think at first, escape from the ship, starts her on a path of learning not to lie to herself and then meeting Bay and realizing that she's the kind of woman that takes no shit. You know, she can't, she can no longer lie to herself because Bay is going to call her on every single thing, right? And, you know, what is so interesting about their relationship and how how different they are as women is that initially Gabby hardly even registers Bay as a person right in her interview she's already erasing her she's already saying oh this woman and I we didn't share a language she really played no role in my rescue or survival it was kind of it was all me I made it through myself and then by the end of it she's like oh shit thank you for coming after me. I wouldn't have made it through a day if you hadn't come with food and with blankets. And, you know, she is fully registering that someone other than herself is a valuable human being. I can feel the the interludes being earned more in retrospect. Mm. Um, however, I, I still wonder about the ending where I felt like the two last bits of the story mm. tell me what the story was about. I mean that the, the two last stories, the last interlude that Gabby has inside the music asks her, tell us what happened. And Gabby says, I was nearly lost out on the ocean, but somebody rescued me. It's a different life, a smaller life. I'm writing again. People seem to like my new stuff. If it just ended there, I kind of would love it more than having what felt like another... Mm-hmm. I understand it's the other character's summary of the story. But, I, yeah. but like her... The last bit, Gabby is playing the guitar. And Bay is making up her own words to whatever song Gabby is playing. And and there, there there's an extra bit where it says what those words were about how sooner or later everything falls into the sea, but some things crawl back out again and turn into something new. And this is absolutely my aesthetic. But I would have loved the story so much more if it was just Bay made up her own words to it in her head, period. I mm. like because as soon well, as she inferred, right, that some things call back out again. Yeah, it's both inferred, but inferred in a way where it's actually much bigger. Mm-hmm. As soon as she tells me the stories about things crawling back out of the sea and transforming into something new, two things won't happen. One is I feel like I have less space to just imagine the story and two i'm thinking my my dumb brain is thinking wait did anything crawl out of the sea <laughs> did anything transform is this story about thing anyway um it made me think about what you said of one of your writing professors saying you can pretty much just cross out the last paragraph and possibly the first <laughs> paragraph of any story you write and i read i read a quote somewhere i maybe somebody tweeted it today like the first and the last paragraphs of any story are where we lie most to ourselves yeah i think that is true can I tell you about some of the stories this made me think of? You can, yeah. Because it was really just one author, in fact. It made me think of Ballard. And I wrote Ballardesque in my notebook. I don't know if that is a real word, but it definitely yes. is now. Yes, it's a real word. <laughs> um, it made me think of two two of his stories. One, The Drought, which is what happens, you know, how the world kind of disintegrates and figures out how to live after the water, all the water in the world dries up. And the second was Cocaine Nights, which is where uh, rich people have segregated themselves off in this kind of enclave and on the Spanish coast and are so bored with the kind of not having anything to do in life that they have turned murder into this kind of art form, basically. And that's... Like, like with Lori Penny. <laughs> not that kind of art form, exactly. but But certainly, you know, one in which they... It's more like a giant game of Cluedo 
that they that they're playing with each other. Oh, oh yeah, you call for, that for Ameri- for North Americans. Yeah. That would be a giant game of Clue. Wait. I'm unsure why we need the dough. That's just what we call it. <laughs> anyway, the, uh, so you know something that I see in ballad stories time and again is this huge grotesque kind of disparate way of living between the haves and the haves not the haves nots the have nots and and that's something that what i love okay right is sarah puts it in the background of the story but doesn't like smush it in our faces in fact what i love is that she inverts that trope a bit by describing not some crazy riot where everyone was mm. being killed or, or torn apart, but the people that had been left behind yeah. just banded together and made things work and were like, wow, look at all of these giant houses that the rich people left. Let's live in those. Mm. And that was a current that ran through every paragraph of this story, right? It was hope. Mm. And I loved it. And I think in some ways it's much tougher to write a story that leaves you feeling hopeful, right? It's it's almost easy to see how humans and empathy and society can crumble. But to write something that feels like a realistic representation of the alternative. Oh, thank you, Sarah. I love it. Someone once told me the hardest story in the world to write is a love story with a happy ending. These two women, right, they're both running in some ways, right? Because so Gabby is obviously running from the boat and Bay is running from her memories of Deb, albeit while staying in one place. And well, de- what she's dealing with, I guess, is not that she's running now, but that she chose to run away from the city when the water and power failed. And that because Deb was, I think it said she was away on business, but they weren't together. And so when Bay chose to run and she had no means of contacting Deb, that decision, I want to say, struck them asunder, right? Because it feels so momentous like her decision to go at the time she did god imagine how tortured you would be like maybe maybe deb turned up the next day yeah did i wait long enough yeah you would always feel what if i had waited one more day thanks for listening readers as always we probably did not talk about all of the stories in the world today if you have any stories you feel like we should have talked about or things we should have said about the stories that we did talk about you can hit us up on twitter at Storyological, which is story. Like the word. Oh. Like a cheerio. And logical. Like Aristotle. You can follow her on Twitter at E.G. Kosh. And you can follow him on Twitter at Kuvols, C-U-V-O-L-S. And of course, for show notes, appropriate gifts. All of our random references and our previous episodes. And a chance to subscribe to our lovely newsletter or this podcast. You can always find us on the web at storylogical.com. Thanks for listening, readers. See you next time. Happy reading. So yeah, basically, me and my two mates went down to the shore, and it was Brighton, and so the shore only had rocks on it, and it really hurt my feet. Brilliant. (laughs) Come on, that was brilliant. That was A+. If nothing else, that was total commitment. Total commitment. Total commitment to being a 1950s... Um, I don't know, vaudeville comedian? You heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. Imikosh says he sounds like a professional. (laughs) 